You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Tom Gilovich, who is a professor at Cornell and also the author of, wow, well, a lot of books, including the key textbook in social psychology, right? He's co-author along with Dr. Keltner and Richard Nisbet, also the author of a couple of books that I've used intensively over the years, right? There's the old Heuristics and Biases book, which you edited. There's also How We Know What Isn't So, and and I couldn't find my copy of that, but I think it came out in the 90s, and I remember- 1991. Yeah. Believe it or not, I was teaching a course on operations to undergraduates, and I spent a lot of time talking about judgment and decision-making in operations. And I think that the reason why I thought those two things went together is because when I was in grad school, we had a judgment decision-making class that was kind of in the information management department. Somehow, you know, with the folks that I studied with, it all kind of made sense together. And then you got this book here called Why uh, Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes. And I think this is from like 99. It's, It's pretty yellow by now, but I used this in my behavioral finance course for many years book. Glad to hear that. Thank you very much. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I didn't put a wing on your house with the copies that I assigned, but the latest book is called The Wisest One in the Room, which is, it's, I think it's five or seven years old by now, which you co-authored with Lee Ross, but it's still, you know, something definitely worth looking at reading or rereading in my case. So welcome, Tom. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, you know, you've got this textbook on social psychology, but this book here that you co-authored with Lee Ross, you explicitly say that it's it's a book that combines social psychology and judgment and decision-making. And I think some people think of judgment and decision-making as being about kind of the individual decision-maker kind of operating in isolation, which is why I think economists have absorbed the insights of JDM. Very easy to kind of drag that into the model of the individual decision-making, you know, Robinson Crusoe on his island and so forth. But I feel like both of those disciplines are, they're merging and combining because what they're really trying to do is understand the why, right? Or understand causation when it comes to human behavior and to kind of separate out the social aspects and the non-social aspects is kind of an artificial distinction. And, and when you, you say that this book is really all about, you know, the cultivation of, of wisdom and wisdom really is about knowing the why. So to be wise, do we need to be psychologists? <laughs> you know, do we need to have the kind of insight that you can get from these different academic disciplines? That's a good question because the issue of the definition of wisdom is a sticky one. And a lot of different people will come at it from different directions. But you would be hard-pressed to say that someone is wise and they aren't smart about people or they ignore other people. We are social creatures. And one way of saying it is no matter how unsocial you might be, you just want to be left alone before artificial intelligence took over. You just wanted to write code by yourself. Even then, the most important things in the world for you would be other people. You'd have to have customers. You'd probably have a boss. You have coworkers. And even if you want to be left alone, 
good luck with that. You just, we just can't make it on our own. And therefore, to be wise, to be effective in this world means that you need to understand all that we've learned about rational choice, logic, etc., and combine that with knowledge of people. And so, as you noted, the border between this field of judgment and decision-making and this other field of social psychology, it's a murky one, or better way to say it, they just overlap quite substantially. But I mean, I think also studying social psychology is a way of studying one's self, right? It's really about understanding oneself. And I think you point out in the book, right, that, you know, we're oftentimes a whole lot better and perhaps more objective when it comes to understanding other people than it comes to understanding ourselves, right? In other words, if we kind of create some distance and look at ourselves from above or, you know, imagine that it was some other person who was doing what we were doing, you know, we would probably come to a more accurate understanding or explanation for the actions that we're taking. So, I mean, is having some distance or remove a, a way of gaining a better perspective on ourselves as people? Yes, I think so. And another way of saying that is that we've got this incredible capacity to look at things from many angles. We often don't do that, but we have that capacity. And when we do it, it really serves us well. And one, there's a variety of ways we can look at different angles, but maybe the most important is to zoom in and zoom out. There are times, you know, when we're thinking about ourselves, we that's as close as it gets. You're as close to yourself as you can be to any human being. So there's a natural tendency to zoom in, think of the tiny details of what are the particular emotions I'm feeling and what does that have to say about the choice in front of me? We can also zoom out, as, as you say, and think about, well, what happens in general here? Now we're considering other kinds of things, more statistical regularities. So sometimes the zooming in can have us pay attention to information that can contaminate our judgment. Sometimes it illuminates, of course. So this capacity to be able to both zoom in and zoom out is a remarkably helpful one, and we should be encouraged to use it more. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also kind of zoom around, right? I mean, I like to think about the perspective-taking athlete, right? You know, like, can you exercise that muscle of perspective-taking, and can you be like a decathlete in perspective-taking? You know, not just have some incredible ability to take this particular type of perspective, but to take lots of different perspectives. And maybe we can start with, I thought the beginning of the book is when you dig into this idea of naive realism, which is effectively just another way of saying that we think our subjective perception of the world is the most accurate one. I mean, it seems like this is such a fundamental bias that it almost goes unremarked, right? I mean, because it's so fundamental and so basic. Yeah. I mean, the, the job of the brain is to represent the world because that's the way, that's where we live in the world. So we have to represent it. And the brain is taking in all the information available to it, what comes in through the eyes, what the body is doing, how we're moving through the environment. And it constructs a model of the world. And nicely, that happens so automatically and effortlessly that it doesn't seem like we're building a model. It seems like we're looking at the world. It looks like, no, the P 
peach out there is peach colored. The apple is red. When in fact, the fact that it seems red is an interaction between the properties of the apple and our sensory systems. It's the model that we've built up, but it doesn't seem that way. Our brains are making sense of the world. And what we see is the model. We see the sense. We don't see the making. And therefore, it seems like we see the world the way that it is, not the way that we've filtered it, constructed it, etc. Conveniently, we're largely filtering and constructing the world the same way. We have similar nervous systems. So when I say the apple is red and you say the apple is red, we're in agreement that, you know, it's the same pattern of light on our retinas and our brains are transforming that in the same way. So we're not going to fool each other. And one of us is thinking of one thing and another person is thinking uh, of another thing, which can happen as we talk about more complex things about democracy, inequality, etc. But it, it's not possible to see the world kind of as it really is. I mean, all perception is interpretation to some degree. Wisdom is not about getting rid of those perceptual models because it's impossible. So wisdom is just about understanding that there may be other ways of looking at the world, trying on different frameworks and, and models. What would be the difference between a, a wise person and a not wise person in that sense? A wise person recognizes, as you say, that we've built up a model of the world. You're wiser still when you know that the nature of our nervous systems is such that when it comes to this stimulus, when it comes to this circumstance, we're going to build up pretty much the same model and we're going to agree. And in other circumstances, no, there's lots of leeway for your model to be different in mine. And distinguishing between those two is one component of being wise, where we might really disagree as the great social psychologist uh, Solomon Ash long time ago put it, that we need to know when we have different judgments of the same object versus when, no, we're judging very different objects. They share the same name. But in fact, when you're talking about democracy and I'm talking about democracy, we're talking about two different things. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a, a big part of wisdom in your definition is, and I don't think you use this, you say this explicitly, but really it, there's a element of empathy that's required, right? Because you, you have to see that there are these alternative perspectives. So for instance, I forget who it was that you quoted who said that everyone who drives faster than us is reckless and everybody who drives slower than us is lazy. That's the brilliant comedian, George Carlin. That's right. So everybody thinks that they're driving at the right speed and that everybody else is worse. Yeah, because if you thought you were going too fast, you'd slow down. Uh, so what you're driving seems like you are driving to fit the road conditions and therefore kind of by definition, someone driving faster than you, as Carlin put it, is a maniac and someone driving slower than you is an idiot. And, you know, that's true of driving, but it's true of so much the sort of perceptual metaphor almost that he talks about applies to non-perceptual things. So in the political world, if you think the world needs to change in a certain way, you often find yourself sort of in a middle ground where there are some people on your side that want to press too far. And you think, no, 
you're being maniacs. We're going to lose our cause. You can't push that hard, that fast. It's not going to work. And other people seem like they're dragging their feet. They're idiots. Come on. Here's, we got to seize the moment. So Carlin's insight applies much more broadly than to what's the right speed for these driving conditions. It applies all over the map. So how much of this is just kind of conceptual blurring, right? So, I mean, you cite this wonderful study of the folks who are watching videos of protests and they're being asked, you know, are these protesters out of line? And if they're told ahead of time that they're protesting, you know, at an abortion clinic, then if they're anti-abortion or pro-abortion, they're going to come up with different evaluations of the kind of legitimacy of the protesting. But at the end of the day, if the only thing that matters to them is, you know, should I support this or oppose it, then there's two things. What's the protest for? And then what's the manner of the protest? And they're just blending those concepts to come up with the ultimate result. In terms of function, does it really matter, right? If the thing that we're most interested in is like, should we support this or should we oppose this? Why do we care if people are combining and blending and being very sloppy about how they get to their final conclusion? Well, you know, we live in a world in which conflict is inevitable. We teach our kids that, and hopefully we teach them how to manage that conflict. And one way to dampen it down is to understand where we truly disagree. Let's separate the disagreement of facts from the different values and how we want to treat those facts. And often we ignore the first part. That is, one person gets so worked up that the other person doesn't see it their way. And the reason is they're interpreting a very different reality. They're reacting so strongly, not to what you think they're reacting to. They're reacting to a different thing. And knowing that is a first step toward dealing with the conflict. We're going to have conflict of interests. We're going to have conflict of values. Let's not add to it this unnecessary conflict or misunderstanding about the facts on the ground that we have to, that we have to settle. Yeah. I mean, I find in the context of teaching, right, forcing people to take their conclusions and break them down into the various components that led them to this conclusion and exposing each link in the argument tends to, I think, lead to more constructive debate and dialogue. But it seems to only work when the parties are actually interested right, in coming to some kind of agreement. Do we have any good evidence that making people aware of the kind of sloppiness of their thinking will lead to better outcomes? Yeah, there is evidence. I wish there was more, but there's lots of work on training in the scientific method leaves its mark uh, and makes people better reasoners. When we talk about the scientific method, of course, we mean a whole bunch of different techniques. If you had to say, oh, let's pick one that's most important, uh, it's probably the idea of a confounding variable, that the world presents some relationship to you, that having a happy disposition makes you live longer. Training in these various fields that teach these scientific methods teach you to say, okay, wait a minute. Is it the happy disposition causing longevity? Is it some kind of third variable? That's a habit of mind that you adopt. You don't come in the world with that. 
you adopt it from that training, and there's evidence showing that you go through that training, you reason about those kinds of problems just better. We're often good naturally at doing that when the the fact that the world is presenting you is something you don't like. You're pretty good at going, well, wait a minute, what else might be causing this? But when it's something you don't care about or when it fits your view of the world, you're pretty blind to that. And that's where the training really comes in. One of the points that you make is that when people look at people that disagree with them, they tend to think that they're opinion is a source of bias, whereas their own is a source of, you know, their lived experience leads to enlightenment. Other people's lived experience leads to bias. So how does one remedy that? I mean, is there a way to get people to imagine themselves in different circumstances? I guess this bleeds into the fundamental attribution era. I mean, is an exercise in imagination, an exercise in sort of perspective taking and putting yourself in the shoes of other people, does this actually work in terms of reducing some of these biases? And how does one do it? Is it through exercises? Is it through exposure? Is it through conversation? Is it through literature? What works best? Well, there's a lot of accumulating evidence that the act of face-to-face conversation is very helpful. That part of the problem is that, you know, let's take the case of political polarization around the world and in the United States right now. There are a lot of assumptions that turn out to be false about the other side, that both sides think the other side, for example, isn't all that committed to democratic principles. Now, if I think that about you, I'm going to approach any interaction or I'm going to think about a policy that's relevant to your side very differently than if I didn't think that. And we live in a world where it's very easy on social media to throw out these things where we don't have face-to-face conversations. And turns out it encourages our worst instincts. We aren't reined in as much. But when we have conversations face-to-face, you sort of say, oh, this person seems very reasonable. And those illusions you came in with don't seem at least to apply to this particular person. And it turns out to be very helpful. Uh, So live interactions encourage a kind of politeness at minimum and even compassion and perspective taking that helps with this in a way that social media broadcasting your opinions out to the world encourages a kind of castigating the other side that isn't helpful. Yeah. I mean, some of the experiments you talk about where you're asked to provide some kind of estimate And then you're given access to other people's estimates. It's almost always the case that if you shade your estimate in the direction of the other person's estimate, you're going to wind up with a more accurate prediction. What's the functionality behind kind of closing yourself off to those other estimates? It's one thing to describe the fact that people do this, but it's another to really explain it. You know, why is it that that people are unwilling to give alternative perspectives an equal amount of weight? when they're ultimately aggregating these inputs? Yeah, I think there are two classes of explanations, two different reasons that's the case. One is that we live in the world that we live in, and therefore it's not a motivational error, it's an informational error. I get this kind of information, this is what any rational person would conclude, and therefore someone who disagrees with me must be biased in some way. And so 
how to resolve that? Well, how do we figure out how to give people shared information so there's less disagreement? How to eliminate biased sources of information that you may encounter? That's one kind of explanation, but there's a different one, and there's support for this too, which is we live in groups, and we know that, and we know that lots of the rewards and punishments that come to us in life come from the people who surround us, and therefore, I might even have doubts about, is this policy really right? But if everyone I live with believes this, and it's not going to exact some huge cost of me, I'll say, I believe it too, to go along to get along. And that's, you know, there's evidence that people do that. It's very powerful. That's a kind of rationality, fitting in with the people who are going to butter your bread. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's easier to explain groupthink because functionally, if you stick out, you know, you're going to wind up getting ostracized. But the sort of stubborn resistance to right, other perspectives, that one seems a little bit harder to explain. Because if, as you say, the people who adopt these wisdom practices that you advocate will ultimately wind up becoming more successful and happier and so forth, you know, one would think that we would be selected to do these things, right? I mean, with the financial examples in the book on behavioral finance, I mean, it's it's kind of makes sense that we in the Paleolithic period did not have 401ks and so forth. So there's a nice mismatch story you can tell there. But with, you know, simple things like, I think that the caribou is going to be over there and you think the caribou is going to be over there. Like, why wouldn't the sensible hunter say, okay, well, you know, my colleague is just as skilled as I am. So we're going to go at the Euclidean mean of our two estimates, right? <laughs> That's the, probably the most likely spot for the caribou. How do we explain this kind of overconfidence and confirmation bias with respect to our perceptions of the world rather than having more flexibility, fluidity, openness to the input of others and openness to disconfirming evidence? I mean, the issue is a distinction between what we can do and what we actually do, because we can do all of those things that you said, and we sometimes do. And the question is, why isn't that uh, more common, more natural? And part of the reason is that what comes to your mind, getting back to where we started, getting back to George Carlin, feels so immediate, so unmediated, uh, given to you, that's the world that you're seeing, that it's just very powerful. And it's, it's hard to overcome that. It's hard not to engage in confirmation bias kind of thinking. You know, we think of the extreme version of it that can sound ridiculous. Oh, you're trashing anything that doesn't fit your preferences and you're accepting the shakiest evidence that supports your. Yeah, that seems kind of weird. But all of that is piggybacked on a kind of rational thought that, look, if this thing exists, there must be evidence for it. So let me look at that evidence for it. So if I ask you about things that are really pretty neutral, you still look for confirming evidence. And so there's a lot of this that we can cherry pick the ridiculous examples and find fault with people, but there are a lot of close cousins that aren't so ridiculous that reveal, yeah, that's how the mind works. That's what we're stuck with. Now, you also reference the well-known William James hypothesis 
around things like emotions where they're not, emotions aren't necessarily primary, but they're kind of interpretations of what we're experiencing. We, in a way, are psychologists. We observe ourselves, we observe our behavior, we observe our reactions, and then we kind of interpret them, right? So we experience arousal and we're trying to figure, okay, well, what's going on here, right? Am I uh, attracted to somebody or am I afraid or like what's going on? And so in, in that sense, we have sort of folk theories about ourselves, right? And those are presumably subject to improvements, revisions, modifications, the more we know about ourselves, right? So why is this view that, of, that William James came up with, why is it still so counterintuitive to us? Well, I think it's the, again, we keep coming back to this one distinction of the immediacy of it. That is when you get angry, it's taking over the brain and it feels direct, like, wait a minute, I'm interpreting this? That's It just doesn't feel that way. But of course, the same circumstance, we're driving somewhere and there's a a truck breaks down ahead of us and we're sitting there for two hours and I'm going, this is driving me nuts. This is, you know, it's obvious that that's a terrible situation. And you're thinking, you know what? I didn't have anything else to do today. If this was going, if this was ever going to happen, it's a pretty good day. You're construing it differently, and so you're not angry. And the one of the biggest principles of social psychology is the so-called construal principle, which is there's reality out there, but we don't respond to that reality. We respond to how we interpret that reality. And that, knowing that, knowing that that's what we're reacting to, is a big component of wisdom. It allows us to understand where other people are coming from especially when their behavior on the surface immediately may not be making sense to us. So wait, what does this mean to them that they reacting that way? It's a big part of wisdom. Now, if, if you're trying to make an argument for wisdom, I mean, there's a couple different arguments you could make. I mean, one is that you would have just a better understanding of things, right? So it's a pure knowledge. And, but I think part of what you're arguing is that this is going to align better with some kind of happiness. Right. And do you have a section in the book on happiness and how, you know, we oftentimes misunderstand kind of what leads to our happiness. And if we have a better understanding of that, then we can kind of take actions to almost manipulate our way to happiness. I mean, if that's, that may not be the right word, manipulate, but we can take actions that will steer us more in in the direction of happiness. I mean, are you interested in wisdom because it leads to happiness or because it kind of leads to better knowledge about yourself in the world? Or do you see those as not being in conflict? Being a a Westerner, and in particular being an an American, there's always been, you know, sort of woven into us is sort of a pragmatic orientation. And therefore, we emphasized in the book the pragmatics of wisdom. Yeah, you can be really smart, but if things aren't working out for you, we're going to say, yeah, he's a brilliant person, but not going to call him wise. The wisest one in the room is often different than the smartest one in the room. And it's all about pragmatism, getting along with other people, getting the project to completion, and living a life that when it's near the end, you say, I didn't waste my time here. I'm happy in the sense of being fulfilled. And then, of course, you get into the distinction between 
sort of this more cognitively oriented happiness, the judgment you make about your life and the moment to moment experience of pleasure. Both are important and being wiser gives you a leg up on how to have more of both. And what we explore in the chapter is what are some of the guardrails on happiness? What are some of the most important principles? Because as Dan Gilbert and Tim Wilson, among others, they were the ones who sort of led this uh, in their work on affective forecasting, we often predict that certain things will make us happy and we, we can be wrong about those things. And knowing those misforecasts, boy, that's really helpful. Right. And so sometimes you, you say that we can get better decisions if we adjust our temporal frame. So in other words, if we're making decisions in the present moment, sometimes it might make sense to step back and say, you know, if I were making this decision for next week, would I do it differently? And other times you say, if you're making a decision for next week, it might make sense for you to ask yourself, you know, what if I were making this decision in the moment? Do we want our decision-making to be sort of independent of when we're making the decision? I mean, is, is consistency in and of itself? I mean, economists like to talk as if rationality is sort of desirable in and of itself. Is consistency desirable in and of itself? No, I wouldn't say so. You know, I go to the coffee shop and I too get coffee and there is a delicious looking chocolate chip cookie there, I'm tempted to get it. And it seems like a great idea and I eat it. And uh, several hours later, I think, you know, it's kind of wrecking my appetite for dinner. I wish I hadn't had that chocolate chip cookie. There's an inconsistent, is it good to have eaten the chocolate chip cookie? That's different from those different time perspectives. I'm, I'm not troubled by that inconsistency. Yeah, no, it's not inherently irrational to have those two different preferences. Uh, one's going to be more helpful to maximize long-term happiness, more the judgment that you make about your life. Other is going to be a more powerful determinant of those moment-to-moment feelings of pleasure. You have the cookie, that's a great moment. Have too many of them, uh, then maybe you're less healthy than you'd like to be. You have a whole section on cognitive dissonance, right? I remember being exposed to cognitive dissonance back in school with, I think, took a class with Sabini back in the, ah. in the old days. And um, uh-huh. so you were at Penn? Yeah, we, sp- we spent a lot of time on that topic. And, and you talk about Festinger and, and the kind of how this theory has evolved over time. We don't usually talk about cognitive dissonance anymore, but we're still talking about the same types of issues and experiences. How has that theory kind of stood the test of time? It's a good description of a lot of things that go on, but it's not necessarily a a real good explanation of what's going on. It has a number of very desirable features, and I'll probably miss some uh, and may regret, experience some dissonance later myself about, oh, should have said this. But when we experience psychological inconsistency, usually that troubles us. There are some moves we can make to, and the theory addresses this, there's some moves we can make to get rid of that discomfort. But that's the core of the theory, and the core is right. That is, it's been verified by a bunch of different experiments. Now, there are, most of them are old experiments that you'd want better methods uh, today than were used then. And 
it rings true. We all look inward and know that when we feel that inconsistency, we're troubled by it and we do work to feel uh, better about it. That's the core. It also is one core component of a broader phenomenon of rationalization. And we know that people rationalize things and there are things that dissonance covered well about rationalization and things that they left out. And one of the things, I think historically from a history of social psychology perspective that's interesting that was left out was the social nature of dissonance reduction. You know, Festinger had it that, oh, you're troubled inside your head, which is true, and then you do all this work to feel better about it, and that does happen. But you aren't left on your own. I can see that you're feeling down. You're troubled by the decision that you made. And I say, you know what? No one knew that the CEO you hired was going to go off the rails. You know, he had a sparkling resume, etc. Don't beat yourself up over that. I help you. You help me with this. And whole societies rationalize the kinds of things when societies go off the rails. Well, I mean, in the portion of the book on happiness, you, you point out that people who are happier engage in less of this post hoc rationalization. They tend not to denigrate the things that they didn't do or that they didn't receive and exaggerate the differences. Is that causal? I mean, which way does the causation run? Can we become happier if we engage in less rationalization fewer attempts to try to resolve these dissonant feelings? Or is it just that happy people <laughs> don't feel the need to deal with this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, to some degree, all these techniques to make yourself happier, the causal error we know goes in that direction. Do these things and you will be happier because people who undergo cognitive behavioral therapy that works to some degree. And uh, reframing things is helpful. We know that to be true. And we also know that the happiest people that we know are particularly good at that. Now, that raises the, the question you raised, like, okay, those happy people. And Lee talked about this as we think of happiness as a trait, which at some level of description it clearly is. But maybe it's better to think of it as a talent, that happy people have the talent to make all these mental moves and arrange their lives in such a way that they will be happier. And we know some people who get in their own way. They're always thinking about things that, wait, why are you thinking about it this way? That's the worst possible way of thinking about this if you want to be happy right now. And that's the way they think about it. And so the question is, how much is it? Is that just a function of their underlying biology that just like some people are talented at basketball because they have the genes to make them talented, some people have the talent to be happy, maybe because they've learned some things that, again, there's evidence to support that, but a big part of it is the genes that they had. John Haidt in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, has a nice way of putting it that some of us have won the cortical lottery, he calls it, and other people have not. And if you are one of those people that your mind automatically frames things in a way to give you a little cortical boost, 
thank your lucky stars and enjoy it. And as I tell my students, if you're not one of those people, if you didn't win the cortical lottery, not all is lost. There's a lot of stuff out there to help. A lot of work showing that meditation helps. Again, cognitive behavioral therapy helps. Antidepressive medications help, etc. So there's, there's not all is lost if you didn't win the cortical lottery. Right. Now, some people would say that, you know, that's just another instance of the fundamental attribution error, right? To say that there are, you know, happy people and unhappy people. I mean, do we overestimate or underestimate the impact of circumstance on one's well-being? That's a good question. There's a lot of research in social psychology that shows that there are a lot of circumstantial determinants of behavior that we very substantially underestimate. But that's not the same as saying that do we underestimate the impact of money on happiness, the impact of brain chemistry on happiness, each of these questions. That's why there's a science of social psychology, uh, in part to find out what is the real impact of all these things. And some people are interested in comparing that established reality with people's impressions. A big part of the book is really targeting the individual, right? And how the individual can become wiser. But then you you also have a section of the book where you, you try to address some of the bigger problems of disagreement, conflict, global warming even, right? And you argue that a better understanding of humans and a better understanding of what makes them tick is going to better help to kind of deal with these bigger issues. It does seem like with nudge units and all sorts of other organizations that are focused on behavioral change, that there has been a substantial move in the direction of using social science for good. How could we incorporate more of this insight into policy, into conflict resolution and so forth? Oh, I think there's a number of different ways. Let's just take some easy examples first. I had been doing research on people spending money on experiences versus spending money on possessions. And it turns out you tend to be happier uh, spending money on experiences and possessions. Doesn't mean that you can't enjoy your things. You can. Just if you shift a little of your expenditures more in the experiential direction, a little less in the material direction, you'll be happier. Now, there's one concern there that people will take that and think, oh, I've got to have these elaborate vacations. I go to Machu Picchu and put on my Instagram, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And no, the lesson isn't that. They can be modest, not, they don't have to cost anything at all. Get out, ride your bike on the bike trail and go surfing at the beach. They'll let you do that for free. Now, if that's true, then we can be happier as a society if we provide more what we call experiential infrastructure. If there are no bike paths, you're going to not be able, or it's going to be much harder for you to enjoy the thrill of riding your bike through a countryside. If the beaches are polluted, you're not going to go surfing there, etc. So we can build a happier society by providing more experiential infrastructure. There's a terrific book by Charles Montgomery called Happy City that takes a lot of the research in social psychology and design and says, all right, given what we know about happiness, what psychologists have learned over the last 35 years on happiness, 
how would you build the city that makes people happier? There are some guide rails for that. And I think we're seeing more and more of that, of building environments that don't block happiness, that uh, make it easier for happiness to flourish. When you study psychology, at least in the West, you're studying largely what's going on with individuals. But what goes on in the individual head has implications for how you want to create societies, how you want to structure things to take advantage of the things that come easy for us and to make it easier to do those things that don't come easy to us. Right. So in other words, you can use nudges or at least kind of friction reducing policies to make it easier for people to do the kinds of things that would make them happier, make it maybe a little harder for them to do the things that are going to make themselves and others unhappy. We hear this term nudge with respect to getting others to do things, but it seems like a lot of the things that you're advocating are kind of like self nudges, right? Making decisions that make it easier for you to, to do the right things going forward or sending yourself the signals that will get you moving in, in the right direction. I was wondering if you could kind of walk through some of these. You articulate a lot in the book. You also articulate a bunch in some of the other books, but what are some of the actions that people can take to influence their future behavior or at least the future perceptions of themselves? Well, let's go to the field of economics that, you know, took these ideas from Kurt Lewin that if, you know, you want more of something, make it easier. And they've applied it in very powerful and helpful ways. So let's just start with an anecdote. The nudge idea comes from a book by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. And early in Thaler's career, he talked about he was together with a bunch of economists who you know, believed in rational actors with unlimited self-control. They were all eating some nuts before dinner. And one sort of said, no, we got to put this away. Otherwise, we'll eat too much. And if you are perfectly rational and you don't have problems of self-control, there's no reason to have done that. And so even the advocates of, yeah, homo economicus are doing things, nudging their own behavior, in this case, putting it away, creating, we'd call it sludge, is what they've been talking about. If you want to inhibit something, create more sludge for it. So you see it in one of the earliest anecdotes that helped to create the field of behavioral economics. And then in what Danny Kahneman talks about, the preeminent triumph of behavioral economics is automatic retirement savings programs uh, that... If you have to opt in to save, you go, you know, you get a new job and you can think of really good reasons to spend all of that money. You need it. You're young. You've got all these needs. So you don't enroll and you never get around to it or you take a long time to get around to it and your savings are inhibited. If we get you to automatically do it, you save more. And all of the data on the value of the return on those programs is staggering. Well, another example that you talk about is about how, you know, if you do something a lot, then you're going to interpret that as it must be the case that you like it, right? So rather than waiting for the spirit to move you, right, rather than waiting for you to start liking the things that you know you ought to be doing, you start by doing them. And then the, the, the liking comes later. Now, I, I've tried to use this 
as a persuasive argument to other people and say, look, you're, you're missing out by not doing this. You know, you're missing out on all this enjoyment, but the prospect of doing it for most people, if you think about things like chores around the house, you know, you try to try to make that argument to somebody like, Hey, just do it. And you'll wind up liking it. Nobody believes you when you say that, right? You suggested that maybe sometimes, at least with children, you kind of make them do it. And then they'll kind of get in the habit and they'll start liking it. But if you use too much coercion, then that sends the signal. This is something that they shouldn't like to do. How do you balance that between subtle enticement and coercion? Yeah, well, that's an issue that was taken up by the cognitive dissonance theorists early on. And the answer is, it's a careful titration problem. You want to give just enough incentive to get the behavior, but not have it so heavy handed that the person doesn't have anything to justify. The person doesn't say to him or herself, well, I'm just doing it because dad said I had to. And you want them to have just enough so that they're thinking, If they ask themselves, as we often at least implicitly do, why am I doing this? To be healthy, to have fun. You know, you want them answering that way rather than, they made me do it. And it's going to be different in every different circumstance. And so psychology is hard in the same way that architecture can be hard. Engineering tells you what all the general principles are. Now go ahead and create a beautiful building that doesn't run afoul of those principles. Psychology, social psychology tells us some general principles of human behavior. Great. Now I've got this particular kid with this particular activity. What's the right amount of inducement? That's a hard problem. Right. And you you had this other example of a university that raised its tuition and the application skyrocketed, right? I mean, economists are always puzzled by this because this would imply sort of an upward sloping demand curve. And I advised my dean a couple of years back to jack up tuition, you know, to project quality. And, you know, sometimes when you're selling wine and other goods, you also want to do this. But every time you see something like that, somebody can point out examples of where it doesn't work. What's the role of, of theory versus empirics in trying to figure out what to do in, in situations like this? I mean, are we at a place where we can offer kind of precise predictions about what's going to happen? Do we have enough evidence to identify ahead of time what the consequences will be for these different types of interventions? Can we always make super precise predictions? Like if you have your political candidates say these words rather than those words, their vote share is going to go up by this amount. No, we can't do that. That would be ideal. But there are so many ways in which we don't live in an ideal world. Happily, we live in a world now where it's easier to test ideas. And and, uh, it's not just scientists testing them now. Businesses are testing them. You know, the notion of A-B testing, uh, corporations engaging, as you say, in the empirics. That's a huge, important development that can be used for good. So another way of saying this is, look, psychologists run these studies to find things out that help to build theories that guide us to a better understanding of what people do. And those things suggest policies, and we always have to be tested. And so the recommendation is if you build a city with avenues that are this wide rather than that wide, you'll get more pedestrian rather than car traffic and people will be happier. Well, there's a way of testing that. So the theory 
gave you something to try and to test and doesn't work, you adapt. Now, we've seen the rise of things like behavioral economics and now there's, you know, behavioral law and economics and there's behavioral architecture even. <laughs> I mean, it's- behavioral accounting. That's the one. Cornell's big on behavioral accounting. And when I first heard that, I went, wait, even there. I mean, it's, it's people used to accuse e- economists of having imperialist ambitions, but now it seems like that it's the psychologists that have the imperialist ambitions. I mean, does it even, I mean, 20 years from now, I, I don't think we'll have behavioral as a prefix before these other disciplines, because it, it makes sense to include behavior in everything, right? And cognition and everything. I mean, it's like saying cognitive anthropology or, you know, I mean, what other kind of anthropology can there be? So do you think that this is a temporary phase in, in kind of the academic world where everyone's going through sort of a psychological turn and ultimately everything will absorb enough insight from psychology we won't need to point it out or especially emphasize it? Uh, I'm not sure that my opinion on this should be trusted. I am a social psychologist, so I can't see it any other way than how important psychology is to everything, you know, going back to where we started. Even if you are the least social person you know, other people are the most important thing. So it all starts with an understanding of psychology. That's why it is such a pleasure for me to teach psychology. I feel like I have a pretty easy job. That is, everybody who sits there is a human being dealing with the stuff that we're teaching. And so it's it's a pretty easy sell. The fact that social psychology is so easy to teach speaks to the very question that you just raised, that uh, behavior, we're a human species. So behavior is everywhere in everything that we do. So everyone's automatically interested in it. If you rephrased the title of your class, you know, course in, in wisdom, would that attract more students or would that scare a bunch of students off? What is the right brand? I mean, so, nicely, psychology has pretty good brands, despite uh, some of the wrong turns the field has taken over the years. Uh, it's People know what it's about and resonate to it. So I wouldn't be tempted to change the label right now. I'd rather, and well, in fact, there are many psychology departments over the last 20 years who have thought about, should we change our name? And some have. And when they do, maybe it satisfies some goals, but it runs the risk of losing this automatic resonance, really, that people have to the term. field of social psychology has just been through a bit of a crisis, right? You know, we call it the replication crisis. And other disciplines like economics are sometimes a bit smug in their view of what's happened to the field. I believe the field is going to come out, emerge much stronger as as a result of this. But is is there any extent to which practitioners in the field itself fell prey to some of the things that you describe so well in your book, right? Such as confirmation bias. Shouldn't we expect social psychologists to be the least vulnerable (laughs) <laughs> or is is this sort of a, an example of kind of the cobbler and his kids with no shoes? If we're doing it well, we're describing the human condition. And scientists, not just social psychologists, are human. So they're going to be prone to the same thing. Look, if, if someone has put out a theory, spent their whole life on that theory, and evidence comes in that eh, maybe it's not so solid, 
it's a hard task for that person to just back away and go, oh, okay, I accept this new data. They're going to carefully scrutinize it. And it's most studies have flaws. Um, and it's only across a variety of different studies that you really can see the truth clearly. So they're going to attack it and probably believe it more than someone who hasn't expended all that effort in it. So you're going to see dissonance reduction. You're going to see confirmation bias. You're going to see crowd mentalities in all scientific fields. And happily, all of those fields have practices designed to combat them. And in the aftermath of this replication crisis, we've raised the guardrails a bit uh, in a way that allows the science to move forward in a healthier way. And the last question, towards the end of the book, you describe Nelson Mandela, right? This wonderful story about him. And I've written some books on this. And, you know, I think it would be accurate to say that he exhibited wisdom, right? And do you think that the wisdom that a leader like that exhibits is a, a function in part of self-knowledge? I mean, do you think there's a high degree of correlation between kind of an understanding of, of other people and an understanding of oneself? Are they necessarily correlated? Should we start with an understanding of the self in order to gain a better understanding of, of other people? Or should we start by trying to understand other people and then apply that capacity to ourselves as sort of a scientist? It's a good question to end on too, because it gets back to where we started, which is we have this great capacity to zoom in, zoom out, uh, look at things from a variety of different angles. and if you do that well, that's going to give you a better understanding of other people and a better understanding of yourself. So uh, let's look at it from my perspective. Let's look at it from their perspective and so on. That is part and parcel of what wisdom is, turning things around to look at a hard problem from a variety of different angles. And uh, if that's a big component of wisdom, it would be surprising if wisdom was really located in one area rather than the other. Oh, a wise person knows themselves very well and is kind of clueless about other people or the opposite. That's just not likely to be the case if, if as I believe, that flipping, that zooming in and zooming out is a big component of wisdom. Well, I know a lot of people who want to be the smartest person in the room. I think it's much better to try to be the, the wisest person. And so to become that person, you could start by checking out this book called The Wisest One in the Room. And also, if you have a chance, check out some of these other books. Of course, it's always worthwhile to take a course in social psychology. And if you can't find a nice university nearby, go and grab the textbook and read through that. Thanks so much, Tom, for joining me. Hope to chat again soon. Thank you. This was, this was fun. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.